Torrent Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North and welcome to Forum Borealis and a new program in our antediluvian series called Ancient War in Heaven, where we in three parts explore the possibility not only of an extremely ancient solar system wide high tech civilization, but also that it collapsed through a cosmic war, rendering their possible headquarters completely demolished, and the many interplanetary abodes, bases and outposts in ruins, with a possible arranged relocation to our planet, which seems to have been facilitated by incredible advanced and sophisticated technological abilities. This may sound akin to science fiction, but there's actually an abundance of data granting such an interpretation of events without too many logical leaps, at least not as far as the baseline goes. To guide us through this wild ride of yore, we have our forum professor back, Dr. Farrell, who is the definition of a Renaissance man, commanding a large number of subjects, both from his personal interests as well as through his formal education. As a former professor with a PhD from Oxford University, he masters several interdisciplinary matters, including a lifelong passion for subjects in which he's attained a skilled level in everything from ancient and recent history to obscure and deep physics. He's an outstanding, prolific author, having written more than 37 books on various themes, especially on controversial and exotic matters. He is a respected documents researcher with a mastery of all sorts of primary texts and owns an exceptional ability to perceive new angles in old expositions, connecting seemingly disparate dots and unearthing innovative solutions. On the artistic side, Farrell is a lifelong classical composer and performer of the cembalo in the Baroque style of Bach. No doubt a major factor to why he captivates our attention, apart from his profound knowledge, is that he's not shy of scenario thinking, but as a good scholar makes it clear when he hypothesizes and what is argued speculation is based upon, allowing us to draw our own conclusions and even pursue further the various loose threads. For more details, check our presentation page of him at our website, forumborealis.net, where you'll find his most complete bibliography online. And you can also visit his own site, an online academy of sorts called Giza Death Star, 
after some of his early books on the antediluvian topic. Tonight's conversation is based upon one such early book that lies at the center of his four main subject pillars, namely the one called Cosmic War. Welcome back, Joseph. Thanks for having me. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy to have you this time. It's been a while. Yeah, it has. April, I think. Yeah, maybe. We, we always have one show with you brewing that's not launched while we're having a new one with you. So we haven't yet launched the last JFK show. Right. And it's great timing to launch it now due to the hula hoop about... Oh, yeah, the documents release. Which was a big <laughs> disappointment, huh? Actually, no. Um, 10%, man, 10%. Yeah, but what was released was very interesting. Over here, I was I was um, doing my blogging and listening to some talk radio shows over here on the day that they came out. Mm. And... More than one American talk show host had on, I, I won't mention his name, but had on a well-known JFK conspiracy skeptic, uh, a, a well-known defender, more or less, of the Warren report. And he was saying, you know, spinning, before the documents were even really digested by anybody, he was spinning it, well, there's nothing in there. Uh, basically, they substantiate, you know, the Warren report and all that. And, of course, if you look at what's in them, they do anything but do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've, we've got clear indications that Oswald was connected with um, the CIA in some capacity, which, you know, JFK assassination researchers, without the benefit of these documents, made a fairly good convincing case uh, of that years ago. Mm. Uh, I'm thinking of... Uh, Marina and Lee, that famous book, uh, Epstein's book, and so on. So all of this came out, and, and now the documents are kind of confirming what, what assassination researchers have said all along. So, you know, oh, the and, thing that and did you notice there was something substantiating one of, you know, when we've had uh, Nazi programs with you, we've uh -huh. had, we've gone down a road which unavoidably ends up in a very interesting conspiracy hypothesis connected to JFK and the Nazis and, and Hitler right. and Bormann. <laughs> and for some reason, well, they put in a Hitler survival document. Well, yeah, that that's what really grabbed me about these things. You know, you had that field report document from some CIA agent down in Colombia reporting right. back to Langley that according to rumors down there, you know, Hitler was alive in some... The very <laughs> it was hilarious. Even the very sober uh, James Corbett, even he started to get second thoughts about what is this doing here. I have my yeah, thoughts. What's that doing in the middle of a JFK documents release? You know that makes you, that really raised my eyebrows. What is this doing? Because I uh, advanced the hypothesis in, in the LBJ Kennedy book that. Mm. 
there was some sort of Nazi connection all, in all of this lingering in the background. That <laughs> nobody, nobody but May Brussel years ago <laughs> wanted to go there, but now we get Hitler survival documents <laughs> in a JF in a JFK documents release. And I thought, well, that's interesting. <laughs> I mean, it, it, there's only three explanations: either it's an it's a wink. Yeah, or it's uh, what would you say overseeing um, when it's a mistake? Right, right. Uh, well, it's either it's either somebody having a bit of fun, you know. Let let's sneak that document in there and see what they do with it, or it was a mistake, as you say, or it had something to do. <laughs> with yeah, no. The third the third is that uh, they want it out there for some reason, right. you know. Yeah. Well. It, that could be it too, um, and then you've got the possibility that well, maybe this does have something to do with the JFK assassination. We just don't know what. Mm. Know? So, mm. uh, you know, there's there's nothing in the documents released that is uh, that's going to overturn, in my opinion, the the vast amount of research that's that's been done. Since president, no, but I don't, I don't think anyone was afraid of that. I, I think they're looking for confirmations. But of course, when they retain ninety percent, and Trump gave them as much time as they want to doctor it until right. they're going to consider a new a new release. Right. And, and I think we have to also notice that it's not just CIA documents; it's documents from all agencies. Right. Right. So, so no, I'm not afraid. I, in fact, it's the opposite. They should be afraid. Well, it's yeah, it's it's tainted the the fact that so much has been held back uh, until they go through it. You know that means that that any release is already going to be tainted and mm. and suspect. So, I view the JFK documents release the same way I view the Hess documents release, which you know is also scheduled for this year. It's already a tainted source. So um, I'm not I'm not thinking that we're going to find out anything new. Uh, I suspect there may be one or two little nuggets that that will yield some new information, but um, yeah. I, I don't think it's going to overturn, you know, sixty plus years of uh, almost sixty uh, hmm. uh, years of, of assassination research. I, I really just don't see it happening. I hope we get more when Bush Senior dies. I'm thinking he's one of the reasons. Um... Yeah, I agree with you. I, I tend to think. There's enough already out there implicating him at some level yeah. in in the JFK matter, and I think I think to be blunt with you, Al, I think that President Trump's release was a little bit of a message uh, sender to uh, the portions of the deep state that were, you know, combating him. Ah, um, uh, not releasing all your cards at once, keeping right. some things yeah. back. Yeah. yeah right right that's yeah. right that, yeah i get it with all of the stuff going on in this country right now with the uranium one business and the, mm. uh the clinton foundation and all of that stuff it wouldn't surprise me that this document's release was part of a much bigger uh bid yeah. and, and i'll not even ask you about saudi arabia because then we'll never get to to business <laughs> no, we won't. <laughs> but before we get to business by the way today this show is going to be called ancient war in heaven based upon your book cosmic war but i want to i want to go a little uh, one more detour with you before we get there sure. because you mentioned the Hess release Right. And we have to make people aware of your new book. Uh, I just got it. I just started it. 
Okay. Well, I hope you're liking it. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, so far, I'm just in the beginning, although I browsed to see what's coming. And uh, we started, one of our first chats with you was kind of about these matters. Um, mm-hmm. And... I'm going to twist your arm to get you back pretty soon sure. to discuss it because it's, it's a classic. It's a classic Pharrell book. <laughs> and um, it's, uh, it, I mean, the devil, uh, no, excuse me, the God is in the details. And <laughs> well, yeah, in this case. <laughs> yeah, and I thought I knew uh, this story, but man, this is interesting on so many levels. And it's, it's, it's like, a, it's not your usual narrative, I think. It's more like a detective story, it seems. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to write it that way because there are other researchers out there that have basically uncovered just an enormous amount of detail uh, about the Hess case. Uh, Some things, uh, very, very few things, I think they miss some of the significance of. But basically, I'm, I'm synthesizing a lot of that information in this book and adding some some details of my own that I think are very significant that have not been adequately really adequately addressed by anyone in in the whole Hess business but yeah the new book is called Hess and the Penguins Mm. and then the subtitle to that is um, Antarctica the Holocaust and the and the strange case of Rudolf Hess Um, it's very timely Um, I guess you had in mind that they were going to release it this year yeah, well, this is the year that the the Hess documents are also supposed to be released. And, you know, I make the uh, observation in the book that this is the same year that the Kennedy documents, which, of course, we've seen release. Uh, and the fact that Hess, there's, there's so much about the Hess case that has not yet been released ought to tell us something about the huge significance of, mm. of that case. Um, and yet there's, there's not so many shows about it. It's not like a, oh, it's no. not a hyped conspiracy theory these days. It used to be back in the day, before, right. you know, internet and everything. I don't know. I, I don't keep attention enough. But there's not that much around, is it, about it nowadays? Well, no, there isn't because people really don't understand really the massive significance of mm. of what he was trying to do, what he was trying to head off, what he was uh, in contact with the British. Uh, Most everybody agrees that he was trying to uh, make peace with the British, but what they don't understand was that he wasn't flying there to negotiate. He was flying there to sign the deal. Mm. Uh, He was flying under royal protection. Uh, He was bringing with him basically a completed peace treaty, uh, there was factional infighting on both the British and the German side. Uh, there's every indication, as I point out in the book, that what the peace plan also was, was an international double coup plot yeah. Yeah. against against both Churchill and Hitler. And again, we have the, the ever-present wonderful man, Hermann Goering, you know, <laughs> mixed in. I, mixed. I don't reveal too much. I haven't read the whole no, book yet. Okay, well, I, I, won't. <laughs> uh, I won't. But yeah, he was. He had essentially negotiated a peace, and that's what he was really there for, is to sign the deal. And But there's a deeper layer here, too. And, oh, yeah, the horror. And, and you connected you connected Antarctica to Hess at some point. Uh, yes. That Took me by surprise, although we did release a promo where we combined the Antarctica and Hess thing, but that was just intuitive on our part. We have no clue. Right. So, and we excerpted it, put it into one show. 
just to spread awareness of us. And that became very pretty quickly one of our most popular shows and the most pirated. Huh. And it was about Antarctica and Rudolf Hess. Huh. Now, uh, what happened right after that is that the Antarctica craze took off. I'm not saying uh, it's because of our show, but we were kind of ahead of the meme in a way. Mm-hmm. And so I got a bit discouraged because now it was Antarctica everywhere, right? And so much yeah. bullshit too, you know? Yeah. But then... Uh, you at some point you you connected the dot between Antarctica and Hass, and that was quite a shocker because it was just coincidental that we fused those two subjects into one show. <laughs> <laughs> and then you came and blew the bomb in a former show of ours, and now you backed it up with this brick in this book. Yeah, it's it's a brick. It's one of your classics, and I've, I've told uh, both uh, Lawrence DeMello and Carter Heydrich. I've told them both that my hunch. So I'm very excited to see what your take on it is. But my hunch is that one of those who manipulated Hess in this affair was Bormann. I think there is a possibility, but but the trouble is Hess is not um, Hess is not the fool that he's made out to be. Um, mm-hmm. He is actually a very unique man in in the Nazi hierarchy. He was multilingual, for one thing. He spoke Arabic, he spoke French, he spoke English, and of course he spoke German. And well-educated. So, and, and very well-educated. Um, he was not uh, by any, you know, if you want to think of him this way, think of him as the cosmopolitan Nazi. You know? Yeah, but, but my, my take on him isn't that he's stupid, but that he's more like he has principles. He's more an honest guy, not so sly as Bormann. You know, the 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 more you yourself uh, are prone to trick people, the more you will also suspect stuff, and the more sincere you are, you the more you will project that. So it's easier to fool honest, honest people. people. It's the boys at the NSA. <laughs> <laughs> I swear, I've had so many guests lately. No problems. <laughs> and we start talking about this issue of bum. Bum, yeah, I know. Anyway, you were about to say that your take on Hess was... Yeah, well, some- I, I, I lost it now. So it's not just that um, he wasn't stupid, but he was more like a sincere guy. It's so easy to trick sincere people because you kind of project what you have in you. If you're a crook, yeah. you'll never be fooled. Because you'll be skeptic all the time. But on the other hand, you'll never have good surprises. But if you have principles and if you're decent, you'll kind of see goodness all over. Uh, I'm not saying it's black and white like that. But but I think Bormann was more clever in the way of manipulations. Well, yes, he was. But to his credit, Hess is the one that spotted Bormann's talent and and promoted him. So mm-hmm. there would not have been a Bormann without Hess. Mm-hmm. Hess is Hess is a. Uh, I wouldn't say he's a master manipulator, but what he is is he's very Byzantine and he's very cunning. Really? Um, wow. Yeah. He. One of the most surprising things I found out when I was doing that book was that. Hess was widely regarded before his flight as being more or less the hidden brains to the whole Nazi operation. There were even articles to that effect in the American Foreign Affairs magazine, the flagship magazine of the Council of Foreign Relations. Yeah, I heard he even was the one who actually wrote Mein Kampf 
or helped. Well, yes, Hess Hess actually wrote the more lucid parts of of, <laughs> of Mein Kampf, and actually the title Mein Kampf itself was Hess's suggestion. Mm. Uh, Hitler wanted some you know title that was was something like four years of struggle against pain lies and <laughs> you know it's it just you know the title went, was yeah. as long as the book you know yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> but, uh, so the title of hitler's book was hess's suggestion some of the very familiar trappings of of the nazi party were introduced via hess from the tula gesellschaft so he he was he was a clickbait master of the day Yeah, mm. yeah, mm. yeah. Um, that's that's a very apt way of putting it. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of layers to this thing uh, that I try and unpeel in in the book. Uh, I call it the Hess mess because once you get into it <laughs> and yeah. see just what a hall of mirrors it really is, you've got everybody from from apparently the royal family, the Duke of Hamilton, uh, the Duke of Kent. Uh, and some other people on the British side, and then you, even the brother of Ian Fleming pops yeah. up in this thing, and MK Ultra, MK, you know, MK Ultra, Alan Dulles, uh, yeah, mm. you know, <laughs> Antarctica, notwithstanding, and Antarctica, you know, yeah. that's the penguin part. <laughs> yeah, that's the penguin part, and people have been asking for years. Well, what's the proof that? that Hess was involved with that. Well, there's nothing direct. However, there are little clues if you really stop and ponder what what is really being said once mm. he arrives in Great Britain, then it's very clear that, that Antarctic is somehow part of the agenda, you know, whatever is going on. <laughs> and uh, and an oddity we have to mention is the old I think it's an 80s new wave band called Spando Ballet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Even oh, yeah. they are present. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I begin the book with a chapter called Spandau Ballet, and I end the book with a chapter called Spandau yeah. Ballet. And the first chapter, I have a little footnote right in the title of the chapter saying, no, I'm not talking about the 1980s rock group. And the final chapter, which is called Spandau Ballet, has a little Uh, subtitle and that one says yes this time I am talking yeah, about yeah, that's funny. with lyrics <laughs> with lyrics mm. yes <laughs> so I recommend it wholly so far I mean I haven't read it yet but uh, it's it's an interesting read so far uh, I'll give a better uh, evaluation next time when we discuss it sure. but let's move on um, uh, Joseph they know about it now and they also know we're going to have a show about it alright so um Tune in uh, next time we have Joseph on for that. You'll get all, uh, well, not all, but you'll get more details. It's going to be a great show, I think. But today, we're going to take on a classic of yours. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I understood it, Joseph, your book, The Cosmic War, one of your early books, mm -hmm. I've understood it that it's actually very central in your whole arc Yeah, I've always considered and I've always said that that book I regard as the keystone in the arch of all the books. That's kind of the centerpiece as far as I'm concerned of, of all of it because it paints in very broad strokes. Uh, I'm trying to get across the idea that, you know, this is this is a struggle that's been going on for a very, very long time. Um 
and you can read those ancient texts and and you find very fascist like behavior from from yeah. certain from certain parties that are interested in wiping out mankind and you know so yeah we're going to take that on sure yeah it is but i think we should start at mm-hmm. uh, this point i had uh, richard hoagland on recently and uh-huh. um, but by the way he was actually the one who noticed me about you Back in the day at, uh, in Coast, he mentioned you. Mm-hmm. That's how uh, I discovered you. Uh, and back then, you were rather obscure. You had a few bite shows. Mm-hmm. Out. That's it. But another guy that I picked up from him is Tom Van Flandern. Yes. And that's where I think we should begin, because Tom Van Flandern had a brilliant book that I think I even bought him before I bought my first book of you. That book is called... Uh, well, you can tell us what it's called. Uh, Van Flanders' book is crucial. Let me see if I can find it here on my show. Exploded planets, missing comets, and dark matter. Missing planets, yeah. uh, dark, uh, God. dark matter, missing planets, and new comets, I think is the title. I always get confused trying to remember the order of that but it's it's i'm pretty sure it's dark matter missing planets and new comets I, i'm looking for the book on my <laughs> shelf and i can never find it me too i didn't find it so i just threw the ball over to you but <laughs> that didn't help <laughs> well it, that's an interesting book because dr Crucial. van flandern uh he died just very recently not too long ago but yeah. he was uh the former chief of the u.s naval observatory so he was you know he was not a fly-by-night he was not uh someone that was so to speak on the fringes of of science but very much uh part of the mainstream but what he did in the book was he rehabilitated a theory that that early 19th century very late 18th century and early 19th century astronomers had proposed when they had discovered the first asteroid because there is a law in astronomy called the the Titius Boda law and it's basically a very simple law of harmonics that based on the orbits of the planets which are all uh, harmonically related in a nice natural kind of arithmetical progression Mm. The law predicted that there should be a planet in the asteroid belt of the solar system. And astronomers were mystified that there wasn't until they found, you know, the first major asteroid, the, the asteroid series, I believe it was. Yep. Which, and, which we believe uh, is, is the biggest chunk of what was once. Yeah. 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 Well, they once they started finding the asteroids toward the late 18th, early 19th century, then they advanced the hypothesis, well, what we're dealing with here is obviously rubble from a planet that used to be there that, for whatever reason, exploded. Mm. And Dr. Van Flandern revived that theory because what he did was he took a computer program and, and sort of punched in the orbits of, of known comets and trace them back to a point of origin in that orbit of the solar system where that planet used to be. And lo and behold, when he did so, he discovered that two dates for the explosion of that planet fell out of the calculations. One date was about 3.2 million years ago, Mm. and the other date was about 65 million years ago. 
which was kind of his preferred date in a certain sense because that corresponded more or less with the KT boundary layer. There's a layer of sediment, silt, and so on in the geographical evidence on the Earth, the stratification evidence, that corresponds with the extinction event of the dinosaurs at about 65 million years ago. Yeah. And he correlated a lot of other data to to back up his assertion that, you know, this this exploded uh, planet hypothesis needs to be looked at again and and seriously considered. Let's pause there. Let's pause there before you move on. Sure. Because uh, there's some aspects I want to blow up here. Mm -hmm. Uh, First, uh, Titus border law. Mm Mm-hmm. It's actually, of course, you know, astronomers, mainstream scientists, they hate something that's harmonic and orderly and makes sense, right? So (laughs) they they try to bury it. But it's got a new revival because, well, actually, they discovered a few more planets due to this. I think it was Uranus, Neptune. But now that they have found another planet out there, Mm-hmm. Uh, that they suspect is out there. That correlates with the Titus Bode law, but they don't want to talk about that because they don't right. want us to, you know, believe in that principle because that could point to some kind of order. Right. And, and it is a Pythagorean principle and Pythagoras launched the word cosmos, which means beautiful order, well-arranged right. order. So, right. so just so people are clear, the whole asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter Van Flandern uh, discovered would have been one big planet and that you can calculate the comets, the asteroids and also other uh, strange objects uh, not belonging, you know, rogue objects in our solar system. They all match mathematically to that one, to those two points where they could have had their origin. And that's extremely significant. It's extremely significant because... What he then goes on to do is, all right, well, if if the planet blew up, why did it blow up? And this is where it gets very, very interesting. And this is kind of how I review it in, in, in the book, The Cosmic War. Because the first thing he posits is that there was some sort of natural reactor in the core of the planet that went critical and the planet blew up. And he's thinking in terms of uh, if you read the book, he's thinking in terms of, of a fission reactor. And there are such things. Uh, there are natural reactors on this planet or evidences of natural reactors that used to be there, most principally in Africa, but there's a few elsewhere. So it's not an unknown phenomenon. Mm. But the problem is, as he's quite well aware, is that to get a fission reaction large enough <laughs> to, to blow up an entire planet is is really kind of an impractical idea. So the next thing he proposes is that somehow there may have been a matter-antimatter reaction, that there may have been antimatter captured and contained in the core of the planet, and that containment broke down. And the planet blew up, you know, because, again, a matter-antimatter reaction is is a total annihilation reaction. So you get a lot of energy out of them. Mm. But, again, the problem there, as he well knows, or knew, I should say, is that the the matter-antimatter symmetry is really not there for a very good reason. Because if the, if, if the relationship of matter to antimatter in the universe was symmetrical, we'd be seeing a lot more explosions yeah, than we are. Yeah. 
So he kind of he kind of mentions it, but he moves quickly off of that idea. And then he comes down, and, and I will never forget reading this, Al, when I first read that book. He comes down to where he says, well, maybe the planet suffered some sort of breakdown of advanced technology, and that blew it up. And then he also says, as he's thinking about that, or it could have been the result of, and these are his carefully chosen words here, mm -hmm. deliberate action. And of course, when I read that, I, I thought the first thing I thought was it was a war. What yeah. he's really saying is it was a war and that this planet was destroyed as the result of a war. Now, you know, Star Wars had come out at that time, and I think perhaps that he chose his words carefully because he wanted to avoid Star Wars scenarios. But uh, I mean, he, he, he wanted to avoid getting booted. <laughs> well, that too, you know. <laughs> that too. But the, so, yeah, that's, I mean, he does entertain. Well, I'll get to that later. Go on, go on. Well, you know, once he said that, I thought, holy cow, if, if this is the case, then it puts all of those ancient texts that yeah. are talking about wars of the gods in a very, very interesting perspective, because if you look at those ancient texts, one of the things that, you know, I really try and drive home in that book and in some of my other books talking about this ancient high advanced civilization is that they use language in a multi-leveled way and they do it very intentionally. There's actually an academic term of art for, for what they're doing. It's called paranomasia. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the idea that, you know, that language is multi-layered and particularly these ancient mythologies that they're, they're really speaking very deliberately. It's kind of like, you know, Baroque counterpoint. They're speaking in a multitude of voices all at the same time. And what's interesting is if you view those texts that way, the names of the gods are also the names of celestial phenomena. They're the names of planets and so on and so forth. So once you start viewing things that way, then you're, you're looking at these ancient texts in terms of the wars of the gods being actual wars, but wars that were fought, so to speak, between the planetary superintendents. In other words, it was an interplanetary war, and it was fought right here in our solar system. Mm. And as I like to put it in, as I put it in the Giza Death Star um, Deployed, if you if you view things that way, then the galaxy that was far far away is far far away in time because what what Lucas is talking about is actually right here in the solar system that there was a war, a planet was dis deliberately destroyed in the course of that war. Uh, yeah, but I mean, Lucas could just be subconsciously expressing a archetypal meme. I don't. I mean, he he doesn't have to know this to to for it. I don't. I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is what most people don't realize is that Lucas hired as a consultant. Oh yeah, Joseph Campbell. Joseph oh. Campbell. Right. And, you know, if anybody is going to clue Lucas in yeah. on 
what sorts of archetypes and things to use. That's right. You know, Anakin Skywalker. Anakin is is uh, an assonance with Anunnaki, and so on. Yeah. And so and the Force be with you. I mean, that's yeah, that's Egyptian ripped off straight from <laughs> yeah, straight from Egypt. So you've got you've got a lot of stuff going on in Lucas. I think that that show the clear hand and influence of of um, Joseph Campbell. And of course, he was. If anyone was familiar with some of the ancient texts that I talk about in in the Cosmic War, it would have been Campbell, um, absolutely. But but hang on, hang on, we're not done with uh, Van Flandern yet, because oh no, no, I didn't mean to... yeah, because I mean you could probably elaborate a little on this too. Uh, if you look at the planet Mars, right, it's obvious that if this planet was between Jupiter and Mars, and by the way, uh, Van Flandern can also tell us something about its size because uh, right. the matter uh, there's so much matter around that it's it was a huge planet according to him a huge planet yeah. and if you look at mars the side that is uh, turned towards that planet is just bombarded on the half side yes. and on the other side uh, there's there's no uh, scratches yeah so that's an indication too Van Flandern actually posits that Mars may have been a satellite, a moon of this planet. And, of course, if oh. that planet blows up, what, what is unusual about Mars is that one entire hemisphere, as, you, as you've indicated, looks like it was subject to sudden massive flooding and and bombardment mm. and i you know i've always entertained the notion that because of that the the mythology of the flood if there's one planet in the solar system that looks geographically to fulfill the the literal understanding of of, of a global flood it's not on planet earth it's on mars mm. Uh, and you know this this brings up Hoagland and all of that stuff. But if if you look at Mars, the other thing that's very interesting, as you said, is the other hemisphere doesn't look that way at all. It's as if you're dealing with two entirely different planets in terms of their topography. Mm. And the other thing about this is, is if you explode a, a big solid water-bearing planet. And Mars is, you know, first to get hit with the shockwave. Well, what that, what is that going to do? Well, it's going to rip off the oceans. It's going to rip away the mag uh, magnet, uh, magnetosphere. magnetosphere. Yeah. yeah, the magnetosphere of the planet. It's possibly going to kick it into a wobbly eccentric orbit, which is what we see. So, in other words, Van Flandern, you know, is not making his case simply on cometary orbits or anything like this. He's also making his case on the basis of of the exoplanetary geography of Mars, its unusual hemispheric distinctions. Uh, he's making his arguments on the base of, of it used to have an atmosphere, but now doesn't. It used to yeah, I'd say it's a full theory. Oh, yeah, it is. It's, it, is a, it is a fully fleshed out theory. And this is, this is so interesting because it's also a theory that, to my mind, not only makes sense of the data that scientists would deal with, it makes sense of the data that uh, other people have noticed about Mars, the, the 
clear indication of artifacts of, of artificial artificial structures and so on there it makes sense of the texts mm. that we have here on planet earth of wars of the gods and of course mars is associated in human mythology over and over from babylon to the roman empire with with war um you know Nergal and in the Sumerian texts, uh, Heracles, Hercules, Ares, and and it yeah, and it makes sense of so many things that, and we have to say that too, that we don't have answers for in the mainstream today. Right, right, exactly, exactly. He really and you, gets- and you said something very important here. You alluded to something that Van Flandern was convinced of. I'm not sure why, but he was convinced that this huge planet was an, a water planet. Yes, yes. He believed it to have been about 2.3 times the mass of the Earth, a solid and water-bearing planet. And the reason why is because of not only the geographical evidence of sudden massive flooding on Mars, but you also have uh, indications on the asteroids of sudden uh, sudden stress, uh, sudden pressure that creates diamonds in, in the meteors that fall to Earth from the asteroid belt and so on. So in other words, all the indications are there that, that this was a catastrophe. And if you put Mars into the mix, it's very much like Graham Hancock said in one of his books, that the, you know, the planet looks as if it had been deliberately murdered. Uh, and now recently, you know, let's, let's just toss this into the mix. You have Dr. Um, John Brandenburg coming out with his paper that he's read to various scientific uh, committees, arguing that, that Mars was in fact taken out by a very, very massive nuclear weapon because of the signature, presence, yeah. yeah, the signature of Xenon-129 in the atmosphere of Mars. So, you know, and that's a product of, of nuclear reactions. It's not, it's not a very prevalent, naturally occurring isotope. So, yeah, we're going to have Brandenburg of, on, actually. Oh, good, mm. good. Excellent, excellent. And Brandenburg, let us remember, Brandenburg was one of the very early people that, that Hoagland consulted when he wrote his first edition of the Monuments of Mars. And, and that's where mm. Brandenburg first mentioned this Xenon-129. And Brandenburg being a NASA scientist. Well, Brandenburg is is uh, connected to the Black Projects world. He's worked at Los Alamos. He's been a plasma physicist and, and worked on you know some some secret projects. So he's not again. He, you're not dealing with someone that's a so to speak on a, a fringe scientist. He's the real genuine article. So everything is pointing. This is the bottom line. Everything is pointing to a major planetary catastrophe in this solar system eons ago. Uh, and that catastrophe in turn affected Mars and would explain why we see not only evidence of artificiality there, but but some of that artificiality that looks as if it had just been ripped apart mm. by something catastrophic and sudden. Mm. Now, before we go to the consequences that would have had upon Earth, which uh, will be, uh, you know, an important focus here, Mm -hmm. we should also mention that Van Flandern, I mean, it's, it's a, the whole book is, reads more like a scientific uh, study, but he does entertain a little popular thing that's very exciting for us laymen, and that is he does entertain, could this planet have life? 
mm-hmm. and could it have intelligent life? And as right. I understand it, it's uh, had to have a very heavy gravity. And uh, I'm not, I can't recall, it's so many years since I read the book, but I seem to recall he entertained the notion that it could have uh, hobbled giants. Well, no, I, I think... I think you may be confusing that with my book. Um, I don't recall right offhand that Van Flandern entertains the idea of giants. I think he does suggest that in that kind of gravitational environment, that there are two possibilities that might have occurred. And and I mentioned these in the Cosmic War. Mm-hmm. One would be that if you are living in that extreme gravity, you might have people that are much shorter than we are. Or you might have people that are much larger yeah. and taller than we are with, right. with a bigger bone. You know, there's there's two ways to rationalize this. Yep, yep. And I find that very interesting because, of course, you have on this planet, you have uh, some evidences of large hominid beings that, that – you find it in, in Indian lore and in Native American Indian lore. You have Columbus referring, you know, to seeing giants when they, <laughs> when they got here to the New World. Oh, you have it all over the place, man. Cyclops, yeah, you name yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So you've got, again, another little data point that, that correlates very nicely to, to his hypothesis, his theory about all of this. So, I, you know, that's kind of my point of entry. I mean, we have both on Earth. We have uh, uh, short people, right? And we have huge people. And genetically, we have that too. Well, the interesting thing is, if you look at the old Babylonian cylinder seals, royalty cylinder seals, you'll find something very interesting. The king in those cylinder seals, the big man, quite literally, is is the the term for a king. Well, you look at those cylinder seals, and you'll see these big humans sitting on their throne with a tiny little kind of human figure approaching them. And the academic uh, approach to that is, well, you know, they're simply stylizing the representation of the king. But when you throw in big planets that may have had big people, Mm. uh, you might be dealing with a a real depiction there rather than simply a stylized uh, representation of royalty. It may be that that there really were people that big. And you certainly have the biblical text refer to giants and so on and so forth. So it's not... It's yeah, and we know the, the obsession about preserving the royal right. blood, the right. genetic line. Right. That's That dovetails with, you know, people, if huge people came here, over time they would be integrated, right. but they would want to preserve as much as possible their culture, the tradition, whatever. Right. Also, I seem to recall the anthropologists found a race, ancient race of little people somewhere in in the East. Uh, I believe it was Indonesia. Yeah. Um, Yeah, they're the the so-called hobbit. Yeah, so we know Um, that it's possible for Homo sapiens to come in all shapes and and forms. There's nothing exotic about this uh, notion in itself. Right. The only thing here is, would this planet, if this planet had uh, intelligent life, would they, uh, especially if it was taken out artificially, then it stands to reason that they would have the capability to leave that planet. Sure. 
Yeah, exactly. And also know about it in, in advance. There would be survivors. Exactly. Well, I think when you get right down to it, Al, if you look at all of the research that has been done by people like Mr. Hoagland and, and other people on, on uh, exoplanetary archaeology, you certainly have anomalies on the moon that indicate some sort of artificial structure, you know, the Blair Cuspids being the most famous and, and undisputed example of that. Uh, you certainly have oddities on Mars galore. Um, you know, the more, the more you look, the more you find. And there's Saturn's moon, Iapetus, that looks everything like, you know, George Lucas's Death Star, you know, makes you wonder what he knew and when he knew it and how he knew it. Mm. Um, you've got all of these anomalies in the solar system. So, I, you know, I have no trouble thinking that we're living inside a vast solar system ruin of something that may have been truly interplanetary at one point very, very long ago. Yeah, I see your moon anomalies and i raise you <laughs> i raise you who built the moon i mean the whole moon in itself is, is such a weird have you read christopher knight's book called who built the I, moon i have i've read it but you know it doesn't take it doesn't take much thinking to realize that no. the moon is a very very strange thing <laughs> in itself <laughs> doing some very 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 strange stuff you know yeah, yeah, yeah. Notwithstanding the artifacts. Uh, you know, the old adage is the, the, the only thing that gives me a headache, supposedly said by Isaac Newton, is the moon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, if, if someone actually can explode a planet, it's not that far-fetched to deduct that they could probably also manipulate huge objects like the moon. Sure. Well, obviously the moon was manipulated, and here's why. And I, I don't even have to go any further than Isaac Asimov to point this one out. And again, you know, a reputable scientist, in addition to being a, a well-known science fiction author, because he points out that if the moon was fissioned from the Earth or had been captured, you know, the capture model of the moon mm. by the Earth's gravitational field, the orbit that the moon would have would be far more elliptical than it is. Mm. Because as it's entering the gravity well of the Earth, it's going to accelerate and it's going to kind of wobble in a big ellipse, you know, around the Earth. But no, what you see is the moon is in a very circular orbit around the Earth. And that's next to impossible with the capture model unless somebody put on the brakes you know, <laughs> and parked it there quite quite literally and it, in addition to that it's at the exact required distance from the earth so that during solar eclipses the the silhouette of the moon blocks out the mass of the sun leaving only the surrounding corona so, you know, again, there's all of these strange things about the moon. So many. I mean, you can't even yeah, mention them. Yeah, there's so many you can't even mention them. But just mm. do a little elementary physics and you start realizing that, uh, you know, the biggest UFO that you've probably yeah. all seen is sticking right up there in the <laughs> every, sky. Every night. <laughs> every night. And we're going to try to have Christopher Knight on for, I mean, he's not the only one who wrote a book like that. But well, you know, uh, the, at least he's one we can get on. Well, the first ones to propose the idea were the Soviets, believe it or not. Back in, wow. I, yeah, back in the 70s, the Soviets 
a bunch of Soviet scientists, astronomers, actually published an article. It was in the English language edition of Sputnik, right. uh, but it had been published inside the Soviet Union, and you know they just came right out and said this thing may be just a big, huge artificial spaceship of some sort because wow. what it's doing is just too weird. <laughs> you know? They came clean so, about it. Wow. Yeah, they came. Yeah, they came very clean about it. In some instances, it's, it's amazing to me that when you really want to get out of the box thinking that's accepted as part of the mainstream just because of the common sense of, of looking at what the moon is doing. <laughs> yeah, but common sense doesn't have a big role in mainstream. Well, not in this country. <laughs> no, and, and I, in the whole West nowadays, of course, we're all, uh, you know, part of the same quote-unquote country. But here's my thinking, and, and now we're going to hypothesis here. Now, if there's an advanced race of beings, mm -hmm. if they can explode planets. Mm -hmm. And when we also see the fact that there wouldn't be life on Earth if it wasn't for the moon, mm -hmm. you alter the moon a little bit and, and it's all a closed case. So it's thanks to the moon there is life on Earth. Now, mm -hmm. I, I think those two data points are suspicious because here we have a huge water planet and we all know that for a planet to har harbor life, it has to have water. Mm -hmm. And so, we, and, and that planet is gone. And then we have another planet closer to the sun taken care of by the moon, mm -hmm. also being artificial, just like the mm -hmm. explosion. I mean, there could be a relation there, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things I point out in that book and in uh, Giza Death Star Destroyed is that there are mythologies around the world about a time when the moon was not there. Mm. Uh, the Greeks have have uh, such a mythology, and in the Hindu literature, you'll find the expression "the old moon broke." Right. Uh, you know what does that mean? Mm. Um, and what made it break? <laughs> and what? Yeah, exactly. What made it break? You know, you find all sorts of the strange, strange stuff. And while we're talking about moons, let's talk about Phobos and Deimos. You know, the two moons of Mars. Mm. Because, I, I, and I go into this in, in Covert Wars and Breakaway Civilizations, um, the, the interesting thing about Phobos and Deimos is that it took so long to discover them. The telescopic technology existed in the 18th century for those things to have been clearly seen. And, you know, there were astronomers and scientists looking at Mars through their telescopes, and yet... They were not discovered until uh, the late 19th century by Asaph Hall. Mm. And this raises the question, well, why weren't Phobos and Deimos seen? Well, again, it was a Russian, a fellow by the name of Shklovsky, uh, whose book was incidentally translated into English by Carl Sagan. Mm. But um, it was Shklovsky, a Soviet, a Soviet astronomer, who actually proposed the idea, well, they weren't seen because they weren't there. <laughs> <laughs> that means someone parked them there at right. a certain, po certain point. Um, the, the Martian version of Black Knight. <laughs> yeah, the, the Martian version of Black Knight. You know, and it gets really strange because uh, Jonathan Swift, the British satirist that, that wrote Gulliver's Travels, mentions in Gulliver's Travels, before Phobos and Deimos have been discovered, he mentions that their orbital periods. <laughs> right. So again, you know how how do you get this happening? Well, very clearly something is going on. Somebody's covering something up. 
Uh, and again, it was Shklovsky uh, that pointed all of this out about Swift and, and Gulliver's travels and, and the two Martian moons. Mm. So yeah, there's a lot of mysteries in in the solar system and the moon, you know, being one of the biggest, doing what it's doing. Yeah, and at least closest. Yeah, and the closest, absolutely. So um, yeah, so so that could have uh, had a relation right there. Now, one of the first criticism that comes when you flaunt the idea that it was artificially exploded is that mm -hmm. conventional thinking people say, "Oh, but there's nothing that can explode." It, uh, uh, so, what mechanism can explode a planet? Well, I think you're dealing with a mechanism that would, by the nature of the case, had to have relied upon the zero-point energy or the vacuum energy, whatever you want to call it, on, on manipulating the fabric of space-time itself and doing so in such a way that it's loading energy into the planet through the phenomenon of resonance and reaching a certain point where the planet is unable to damp that energy and simply explodes. Now, interestingly enough, uh, in the Giza Death Star Destroyed, I look at the fourth tablet of the Babylonian epic, the Enuma Elish, which is the tablet dealing with the destruction of Tiamat by Marduk. And if you read it carefully... Uh, and read it not as a creation epic, which is what academics tell you it is, but read it for what it really says. It's a war epic. Mm -hmm. And if you read about the destruction of Tiamat, what's very interesting is you have the expression that Marduk is driving winds, plural, winds, into the planet. And Tiamat is crying out and suffering earthquakes and so on. And then he drives in the last lance uh, and it explodes tiamat explodes blows up so think of it as kind of blowing up a balloon to the point that it's just about ready to pop and then you prick it with a pin you give it that last final pulse and kablooey it blows up right. so even even the way that the texts describe this event is is very, very suggestive of the physics behind it. And that's what I think you're dealing with. You're dealing with a technology able to tap into the fabric of space-time to weaponize it and, and to create these kinds of effects through entanglement and resonance on a mass scale. This is where thunderbolts of the gods and torsion yes. physics comes in, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. This is why, if you want to get right down to it, Al, this is why, if you look at the order of books, and I've always told people the order is very deliberate. I wrote the two pyramid books first, and then I wrote Reich of the Black Sun. I plopped the Nazi thing right into the middle of it, and then I went back to the pyramids. Mm. Then I wrote SS Brotherhood of the Bell. And then I wrote Cosmic War, because what you're dealing with in both cases, I think, is the same type of physics. You're dealing with something uh, that can manipulate the fabric of space-time. And once you've said that, if you, if you admit a technology that can do that, then you have the potential 
to to weaponize that. And if you weaponize it, you're going to make a hydrogen bomb look like a kitchen match. Exactly. And this is apart from the fact that such a technology would bankrupt the current elite. Right. It will also risk uh, the life of everyone on Earth. No wonder it's suppressed. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They they have to suppress this stuff. You know, Tesla is a case study here because, and I pointed this out years ago on, on George Ann's show, um, Tesla's a case study here because he made the, the boast one time, give me, uh, give me time and resonance and I can split the planet in two. <laughs> he said that? Wow, I didn't know. Oh, yeah. Jeez. Oh, yes, absolutely he did. <laughs> he didn't have a chance. He didn't have a and chance. He, yeah, and this is, you know, I think one of the reasons that he was suppressed in so many ways exactly. is because they realized that, you know, we don't have any way to control this technology if it proliferates. Now they do. They've got their global surveillance network and so on and so forth. And it's interesting that once we see this global network of surveillance being put into place, what do we also see happening? Well, we see more open and public discussion yeah. of precisely these types of technologies and these types of, of capabilities. Yeah, they don't kill off uh, all the inventory immediately anymore. Right, exactly, exactly. They they do everything else, but but they, they, at least they live. But uh, I have to take a, a little short step here because um, mm-hmm. I'm thinking if I were the a person with influence in charge of these things, I'd say it is possible to monetize it because what you can do, you have nuclear facilities that are well guarded, right? So instead mm-hmm. of releasing gizmos you can put in your car or whatever, just make, a, let's say, a, a, a point of a free energy supplier that's protected like a nuclear facility right? and then hook up a city to that sure and you could place that around earth and you could and then you could monetize it as you want yourself even though it costs nothing right well this is exactly so it should be viable in some sense this is this is exactly what tesla was up to with his wireless power uh, broadcast system mm. and the the thing that's very interesting is that after morgan suppressed it uh, and I, I honestly think we've never been told the exact real story there because Morgan stood a, to gain a lot of money mm. simply by the licensing agreements on the technology. So that the idea that he suppressed it was because he couldn't meter it, which is what we've always heard. No, I don't think this is the case. I think that Morgan probably understood or had someone tell him that, you know, hey, you can weaponize this stuff and it probably wouldn't be very good if it fell under the wrong hands. Mm-hmm. And after the suppression, it's very interesting, Tesla came out and did a number of articles in, in various New York newspapers where he pointed out that, yeah, you could take this system and weaponize it and use it as a means of, of uh, policing the world. If somebody was too belligerent, then you know just withhold the power from them or use it as an actual offensive weapon. So mm. again, he's he's admitting a lot of things that uh, sounds he, to me he's trying to sell it to to the people with that mindset. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I think that's exactly. But even it. that wasn't enough, right? Right. Well, supposedly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, not for a mass production, at least. But uh, no, uh, we're going to have shows, people, in the future. We're going to have people from the Thunderbolts crowd on. We're going to have. Uh, uh, I hope we can have you back too to talk about free energy. We're going to have some of the 
free energy people on what's her name john jane um, manning i think oh uh, jean manning yes mm-hmm. yeah but she's a little busy with a new book right now but we're gonna have so we're gonna we we don't have to explain all these details today because people can tune into the shows where we micro focus on this technology we'll just make them aware that there's a case for right for for this to be possible if nothing else right exactly now, I think and a very important uh, step forward here, uh, because like you said, you've had shows with Georgianne about this. And, and I mean, you've had innumerable shows with her about this. And I really recommend you're, you're let loose, you're in free flow, and you go in very many details about right. the cosmic war and all that. So and it's still out there. People can go in and check those shows out. We can't even pretend to, to go into these details with you. At least not today. But a step we should enter now is the catastrophist. Because mm-hmm. what I see today in this revised day and age, people are cut off from the history of science. And they think that the mainstream today is like some sort of monolith uniform, like they own science. What they don't know, among many things, is that the catastrophists used to be the dominant Yes. Uh, school in science. The uniformitarians hijacked it yes. like they've done yes. on all areas. And I think we should talk a little bit about the catastrophism school. Well, the catastrophist school is uh, has been getting a bit of a revival, not only in the alternative research, but a bit in, in mainstream science. But I want to concentrate on its effect in alternative research, because I'm obviously not a catastrophist. Um, the biggest name out there, I think, that's made the... the Hang on, you're not a catastrophist? No, I'm not. I'm but not. you're not a uniformitarian? No, no, I'm not. Oh, I see. You distinguish because of the intelligence catastrophe versus the natural catastrophe. That's it, right? Exactly. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Fair in, enough. Fair enough. In the cos- You're still a catastrophist in my book, though. Well, yeah, but the catastrophe we're talking about is the result of a war. Yeah. It's not the result of electric universe theory or anything like that, although I do discuss that as well in the book. But what I'm getting at is that you have a number of people – who are arguing that these planetary catastrophes, like exploding planets, are the result of of acts of God or acts of nature, you know, natural Mm. catastrophes. Um, The the classic... Velikovsky. Well, Velikovsky of Zechariah Sitchin being another example. You know, for him, Tiamat was collided with Nibiru, and that's the reason that that planet exploded. Mm. But he has an interesting detractor, Alford. Yes, Alford is another one. Uh, I would regard Alford as the major catastrophist today when it comes to examining texts from the standpoint of that model. Okay. The problem that I see with his model is that in order to make the model work, he has to allegorize those texts that are referring to cosmic wars. So in other words, the cosmic war texts become metaphors for a model. And what I'm suggesting is, no, we need to take these texts far more seriously than we're taking them, Mm. uh, particularly if we're confronted by the evidences of ancient civilizations on other planets that have uh, 
clear evidence of of understanding of of cosmological physics and once you've admitted that then you have to go back to those texts and take them much more seriously if they're talking about a war then you have to take that hypothesis seri seriously and examine whether or not it makes any sense and i i happen to think it does mm -hmm. So I'm not a catastrophist in the sense that, no, I don't explain what you see on Mars as the result of planetary arcing when the solar system was young, all of the electric universe theory. I don't um, take the exploded planet as being the result of collisions or any natural act. And Van Flandern, you know, getting back to him, hints at this because he's clearly uncomfortable with the natural models for why the planet blew up that he's proposing and then he just kind of comes down you'd have to read it in the in his book to see what i'm talking about to get this impression but it's very clear that he's coming down to reluctantly to the idea that maybe this was a an act of of deliberate cause with the technology behind it which means a war mm. so in that sense i'm not a catastrophist no, but, you know, the need to metaphorize these things is, it's not an either or. If you look at uh, esoterica, you see that uh, some rule in esoterica is that truth exists on several multiple layers. Yes. Let's say myths, yes, they can have an historic origin, as we know that many of them have. Yes, they can have an educational uh, formative for the consciousness role, as we know they have. Uh, here we can, for instance, mention people like, you know, Messiah Eliade and Joseph Campbell and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And they can have a cosmic uh, aspect to them. Mm -hmm. Like when giants and titans, you know, are connected to meteorites, which isn't actually that far-fetched if there were giants and titans connected to the very reason we have meteorites, <laughs> no wonder they would connect it. Well, I was getting at this, this multi-layered idea by okay. mentioning Paranomasia earlier. My problem with the catastrophist school, particularly in, in and I, I go into this in, in the cosmic war, particularly in the hands of someone like Alford, is that he uses it to explain, or rather explain away, virtually everything yeah. in terms of that model. I mean, just like the ancient aliens people, only he. Yeah, yeah. In, in the other direction. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you have to be a lot more. Um, I don't know how to put it. I think you have to be a lot more discreet and and balanced between between the two. Um, Certainly not everything is a natural disaster. Certainly not everything is the product of a technological uh, wizardry. So, you know, I'm advanced. It's a basic notion of entertaining several thoughts at the same time. Right, exactly, exactly. Before we, we go to our first break, I want mm -hmm. to uh, explain people a little about your credentials because they actually come in huge play here, unlike what many people may think. Because... Mm -hmm. The next part we're going to take on, we're going to go into the nitty-gritty details of the war, like who mm -hmm. fought, why were they mm -hmm. fighting, etc. Mm -hmm. But here, you actually, you're not just, you know, some stray falling in from the street here, <laughs> because your education is relevant here. Well, yeah, I, I did most of my uh, academic training in, in patristics, and 
when you when you deal with that subject, you deal with texts on a constant basis, hmm. and you're dealing also by necessity you're it sounds like a narrowly focused discipline it's the exact opposite because mm. in order to deal with those texts you have to own a lot of philosophy you have to own a lot of history of science you even have to to understand some things about medieval jurisprudence and you know <laughs> stuff like that so language and, and language exactly which is such a clue yeah you're you're dealing you're dealing constantly with texts that were very deliberately and very carefully written to to encompass a multitude of levels of, of conceptual thinking at the same time. So in a certain sense, yeah, it, it's a good training for this kind of interdisciplinary type of thing that I'm trying to do in the cosmic war because you're you're looking at so many different data sets and trying to correlate so many different data sets all at the same time. And I think, I think in that respect, the book manages to erect a decent enough scaffolding. I wasn't trying to hammer down every detail, you know, to the last, uh, to the last nut and bolt. And I certainly was not trying to hammer down chronological details because there's a lot to deal with when you're dealing with that mm. sort of subject. So I, I, my goal was to erect a scaffolding mm. that may be the scaffolding for a building, or it may be that you need to tear down some of the scaffolding and reconfigure it uh, as more information comes in. I was aiming for a broad outline. In other words, not a... Yeah, which makes it a, a kind of nexus for your many other books where you can go into more details. Right, exactly. Exactly, exactly. But uh, at some point, I mean, it's funny because your field is not exactly one that, uh, you know, interpretates these things in the way you've done. So at some point, you must have an awakening, a sudden one, a gradual one. But was it very early where you started to get uncomfortable about no, the- I've No, I've, I've never, I've, I, quite the opposite. I've never had the view that any sort of traditional exposure to theology is inimical to this sort of stuff. Uh, quite the opposite, because you find, if you read some of the patristic texts, particularly very early ones, mm. you find them you find them speculating about all of this stuff because you know they're reading about giants in the Bible too, and they're wondering, <laughs> well, what does this mean? And it's not that they're closed to the idea of um, oh. these civilizations. You find quite the opposite of, of what most people think is the case. So, okay, so the problem is actually not the thinkers of the past that you study. It's more the, the modern people yeah. whose hand it's in today. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Uh, hmm. it, it's, it's, it's really kind of interesting to me, being someone familiar with patristics, how many times people will say, well, you know, this is going to be hostile to traditional religion, and I'm not bothered by it at all, because, you know, I've read these people, and they wouldn't have been bothered by it either. You know? <laughs> so, In fact, you're a traditionalist here. Yeah, I'm a, tradi I'm you're, a traditionalist. You're standing on their shoulders. Yeah, I, I'm a traditionalist, uh, very much so. But obviously, they couldn't entertain technology back in, in the day, uh, but still they went as far, uh, you know. As they could, yeah. yeah. Mm. yeah. 
and I think I think this is what emerges from the text that I do examine in that book is that obviously they're describing things that they don't have a technical language for. Mm. So they're describing them in the most technical language that they have available to them, which is usually the language of religion or metaphysics. Mm. And they're trying, they're, they're describing things analogically. Uh, you know, Marduk and his winds destroying Tiamat. Right. But if you stop and think about it, well, what's a wind? It's a, it's a, it's a longitudinal wave. It's a wave of compression and rarefaction in a medium, in this case, air. So it doesn't take much. You just have to kind of learn to look at these texts in an analogical fashion and uh, understand that they may be describing real events in, in the best language available to them. And what you're doing is you're adding, you're, you're taking that clue and simply reinterpreting things along a more modern <laughs> scientific paradigm. So it's not that difficult. Mm. No, in many ways, uh, it's actually natural because many people accuse us of projecting our current right. paradigm back in time. But what they miss in that accusation is that we have access to both these aspects of reality today. And if right. indeed there has been an advanced civilization, then they too would have both those aspects. So that actually just means that we're in a better position to decode right. this, taking into exactly. account the current. And the problem yeah. with the mainstream is that they refuse the current because of another big lie, namely that we were primitives and never had access to Bingo. this. Bingo. It's the, it's the uniformitarian progressivist paradigm mm. that really is is how they're interpreting things. In other words, they've got their own spectacles and they're looking at things a certain way and amassing evidence for that case. Uh, but if you take the paradigm that there was a very high civilization and it blew itself apart, then its mythological texts will only reveal themselves over time as science crawls back mm. to the level it once was at. And I think this is clearly what's happening, not only in, in terms of talking about cosmic wars, but certainly in, in physics itself, ever since the advent of quantum mechanics, increasingly, they're having to deal with, with the reality of consciousness and the reality that consciousness isn't uh, encapsulated or, or, or enclosed inside of our skull. Um, you know, it, mm. increasingly that paradigm is breaking down because it's not making any sense. Mm. Um, so again, I think it's a case that we're crawling back to a level that we were once at rather than we're, you know, reading things into these texts. And again, people have to read the book to understand uh, the texts I'm dealing with and how I'm dealing with them. Mm. And I, I'm certainly willing to admit that what I'm doing is speculation, but I want people to understand that it's argued speculation. It's not yep. just willy-nilly, that there's actually a process of reasoning behind it. Yep. And it's relating to actual data. That's the point. We, we, yes, exactly. we are in many ways more rational than the mainstream. All of us who entertain these renegade uh, from the mainstream notions because we take into account the suppressed data, which right. 
actually, just just in in the field of anthropology, like uh, Cremo told me that if you compare the complete find of what substantiates the mainstream narrative, and you compare that, you lay it out on a table, let's say, and you compare right. it to all the anomalies, there's twice as many anomalies as there's <laughs> Exactly, exactly, exactly. It's Which insane. Means, yeah, it is, and it means the paradigm is broken, quite yep. frankly, yep. and you need, a, you need a different paradigm. Slowly, that academic narrative is, is breaking down. Um, At the cost of people. Yeah, exactly. Max Planck said it best, you know, what does it take for a scientific revolution? And his response was a lot of funerals. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well put. (laughs) Uh, I I think, I really do think that this is the case, that it is beginning to break down. Um, But it's, it hasn't broken down completely. It's, it's probably going to hang on for dear life, but, uh, it's getting to the point that that the anomalies are are piling up and and the standard academic paradigm simply can't handle them all um no there's so many cracks oh yeah absolutely and um uh, they, they, their last card is brute force that's that's how they're maintaining the current status quo now but yeah exactly that can't stand in any long run either no I think this is the place where we'll take our first break, Joseph. All right. And when we come back, we'll go into more details about the who's and why's and the wherefores. All right. I'll see you in a few minutes. Stay tuned, people. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Thanks. 